Nahum 3, 8 through 19. So I'd invite you to take your Bibles and open them to that passage. And as we uh, move through a book of the Bible, hopefully it'll be helpful to you to hear God's word preached and to have the Bible open so you're hearing God's voice, not just mine. So let's stand together as we read God's word. Nahum 3, 8. Are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile with water around her, her rampart, a sea, and water, her wall? Cush was her strength. Egypt, too, and that without limit. Put and the Libyans were her helpers. Yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of every street. For her honored men, lots were cast. And all her great men were bound in chains. You also will be drunken. You will go into hiding. You will seek a refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are like fig trees with first ripe figs. If shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. Behold, your troops are women in your midst. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has devoured your bars. Draw water for the siege. Strengthen your forts. Go into the clay. Tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. There will the fire devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will devour you like the locust. Multiply yourselves like the locust. Multiply like the grasshopper. You increased your merchants more than the stars of the heavens. The locust spread its wings and flies away. Your princes are like grasshoppers. Your scribes like clouds of locusts. Settling on the fence in a day of cold. When the sun rises, they fly away. No one knows where they are. Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountain with none to gather them. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? You can be seated as we pray. God, as we hear your word read, we want to understand it better from our time together. And we want the result of our time together would be that, that your word would be dwelling richly amongst us. Even that we would be uh, speaking it to one another and encouraging one another with it, reminding each other of it. And that we collectively would be living in light of it. That can't happen apart from the work of your spirit in our midst. So we pray, Holy Spirit, fill us this morning. In Christ's name, amen. The first rule of trash talk is don't dish it out if you can't back it up. So I think of... uh, Mike Tyson, the great boxer, circa 1991, when he was the heavyweight champion of the world and he was about to face Razor Ruddock in a match. And he said, 
Mike Tyson versus Razor Ruddock. Razor Ruddock dies. If he doesn't die, it doesn't count. And when you heard those words, there was a certain fear that gripped everybody. You thought he might be serious. This might be brutal. But fast forward a decade, Mike Tyson, circa 2002, a shadow of his former self, nothing like the boxer he once was, about to face Lennox Lewis. And he said, I want your heart. I want to eat his children. Praise Allah. And instead of those words striking fear, they struck everybody as the deranged ramblings of a psychotic fool. Because he wasn't the type of guy could back up what he said. I think of a, a young uh, basketball player who'd come into the league with much accolades named Jerry Stackhouse, and he was about to face Michael Jordan's Bulls. And he went on record before the game to say, I've played Michael Jordan one-on-one. -on -one. Nobody can stop me one-on-one. -on -one. Michael Jordan can't stop me one-on-one. -on -one. Not the right thing to say about Michael Jordan before you're about to play him. If you can't back it up, you don't dish it out. That game, Jerry Stackhouse team was so dominated by the Bulls, Michael Jordan sat the full fourth quarter, which didn't keep him from scoring 48 points and shooting 64% from the field on the young Stackhouse. If you can't back it up, don't dish it out. And so I remind Charles Edwards, who has challenged me to a wrestling match and talks like he could beat me. <laughs> if you can't back it up, don't dish it out. <laughs> so when you look at our passage this morning, it feels a little bit like Trash talk, divine chirping. God is getting after Nineveh, Assyria. He's saying some pretty in-your-face things about what's going to happen to them. And you have to ask the question, are these just the words of an arrogant, upstart prophet trying to make a name for himself? Are these actually the words, as they claim to be, of Almighty God? Can these words that we just read be backed up? Or are they just hollow talk? And the answer to that question matters immensely. If they can't be backed up, all this that we just read is lunatic Mike Tyson in a psychotic ramble. But, if these words can be backed up, they can transform our whole way of looking at the world, even our whole way of living in this world. So let's look again at the words that Nahum 
says Yahweh is speaking. And though there are a lot of, a lot of words here, there, there really are two main taunts given. Some other kind of sub-taunts, sub little barbs mixed in. But the, main, the first main taunt is what I call the Thebes taunt. The Thebes taunt in verses 8 through 13. And Yahweh says to Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, are you better than Thebes? Now this question is laced with the most beautiful of irony. You see, Thebes was, was the capital of the great Egyptian empire. An empire that had ruled the region was the dominant force in the world for centuries. They had military might unrivaled. They had allies at their disposal. And their capital city, Thebes, was located in a place where its natural defenses made it seem like it was a city that could not be taken. You see, it was located by rivers and water, bodies of water that made it impossible or seemingly impossible for enemies to be able to make any inroads into this city. Do you guys remember what we've learned about Nineveh? All the exact, exact same truths about them, right? They're the capital of a great, mighty empire that, that at that point had been ruling for centuries. Nineveh itself was located along rivers that provided great natural defenses. They had a mighty army at their disposal. So the parallels are clear. Irony. But the more poignant irony is not just that Thebes fell, but do you know who Thebes, the capital of Egypt, fell to? The Assyrians. Nineveh. The very people this message is being directed at. So they knew full well what Yahweh was talking about. And what happened to Thebes when they fell? This mighty, powerful city. Look what it says in verse 10. She became an exile. She, was, she had to leave her own city. She went into captivity, carried away in chains, prisoners. Her, her honored men sold as slaves. All her great men bound up with chains. And right in the middle there of verse 10, travesty of all travesties, the invading kingdom actually took the children and the infants of the city and before their eyes crushed them on the city streets. And who was it who did these things? The Assyrians. We've talked about the cruel behavior of the Assyrians and why God was opposed to the Assyrians. And here you just get a little glimmer into how they behaved when they entered a city. 
everybody's out. We're carrying people away as slaves. Other people are being put in prison. Other people are being bound up with chains. And meanwhile, we're this brutal psychological torture that is violent and has no regard for humanity as we dash infants to pieces on the city streets. Thebes fell long and hard. And so God says to Nineveh, are you really any better than Thebes? And then he goes on to tell them through five vivid images that they are going to fall just like Thebes did. He says, you'll fall like a drunken man in verse 11. I remember in university, uh, I lived in the dorm all four years. And so I saw people very drunk quite frequently. And when somebody had come home with way too much alcohol in them, they usually had a friend or two trying to keep them on their feet. And getting up the stairs into their dorm room was quite a feat. They could not keep their feet. For me to try and take someone like that on, even if they were the greatest athlete in the school, I could take them on easily because they couldn't stand. God says, you're, you're going to fall just like a drunk man in battle. The second image he gives is one who is a fugitive. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to defeat you like a fugitive. You know, a fugitive is somebody who understands the powers that be. If I turn and face them and take them on, I lose. So I am going to run and try and hide. I'm going to try and get away. In fact, God says, you're going to be su such a desperate fugitive. People who were even once your enemies, you're going to be going to them, seeing if you can find refuge with them. That's how pathetic of a fugitive you're going to be. Great, mighty Assyria, who winks at nobody. You're telling me I'm going to be like a fugitive, running? And the next image he gives is he says, your fortresses are going to be like fig trees with first ripe figs. I haven't been around fig trees, though I understand that as plants go, they're one of those who the fruit is, when it's ripe, is most easily, most easily falls from the trees. But uh, when I lived in Texas, the big thing there was nut trees, and there were two beautiful pecan trees on the church, uh, right next to the church property that were on public property. And when it was, when it was the right season, those pecans would just fall the ground and and people who were uh, the entrepreneurial top would, would bring these big sticks and just give little knocks to the branches and <laughs> pecans after pecans would fall they'd fill bags and bags of them buckets and God's saying your strongest fortress just a little tap and we'll have the choicest fruits at our disposal. Look how else he describes them. He said, Behold, your troops are women in your midst. Now, in those days when of ancient warfare, 
when the primary weapon was brute strength. To say that your troops are like women in battle would not have been received as a compliment. We can discuss all the intricacies of, of uh, women in battle today in modern warfare, but enough to say that in those days it would not have been taken as a compliment. And then, lastly, he says, it'll be like the city gates are opened and the bars that defend your city have been burned. You know, it's like stealing candy from a baby. You just walk right in. Actually, if you ever try and take candy from one of our babies, <laughs> it's not easy. You got a war on your hands. So, no, it's like walking into a gates wide open city and taking it. All its defenses are open. It's easy. You just walk right in and take it. That's what God says. That's what it's going to be like. Just like you waltzed in and took Thebes and Thebes, this great mighty city, fell, you are going to fall. You'll fall like a drunkard. You'll fall like a fugitive. You'll fall like first ripe figs. You'll fall like women in battle. You'll fall like a city whose gates are open and its defenses have been burned. The prophetic chirping is in top form. Nahum, as inspired by God, has certainly with these words taken his stick and stuck it in the beehive and stirred things up. But he doesn't stop there. He has one other main taunt in verses 14 through 18. I'll call it the locust, the locust taunt. Now, it starts innocently enough. God has declared that he is going to send an army in to fight Nahum or Nineveh. And so he gives some instructions like prepare for the, prepare for the battle. Draw water for the siege. You know, get your water ready. Strengthen your forts. Get your clay, your mortar, your brick molds. Get all this stuff together. But then the real barb hits in verse 15. Busy yourselves to fortify your city. But then what does verse 15 say? There will the fire devour you. The sword will cut you off. It'll devour you like locusts. Now, I've studied a little bit on how true plagues of locusts can be. And they can come in and just darken the sky. Come in and destroy everything in their midst cover everything destroy like the Assyrians this mighty mighty vast army vast empire that could just sweep in and destroy just like they had destroyed Thebes but the thing about that locust plague is it can be gone as quickly as it came. And God says, even as you're the strong locust plague, fortifying your city, it's going to be like fire just comes and <laughs> engulfs the whole plague of locusts, and it's gone. And then he says, multiply, multiply. Like the locust, like the grasshopper. 
Well, you understand, Assyria thought of themselves as strong because they had multiplied their merchants like the stars of the sky. They had rulers all over. They had soldiers all over. They had their influence both commercially and militarily and politically all over their empire. Multiply, multiply. Our strength is in our vastness. Oh, really? Sure, multiply. Multiply. But you're like locusts that descend in the cool, but as soon as it gets hot, you're gone. Nobody, nobody even knows where. Your, your civic leaders, your princes, you know what I'm going to call them? Grasshoppers. Your scribes? Locusts. Gone in an instant. Verse 18 continues the attack on the leaders. In the day of need, shepherds sleep, nobles slumbering while the people are scattered on the mountainside. God is making some strong statements here. Showing not just, I mean, how easy it would have been just for God through Nahum to say, all right, uh, Nineveh, because of what evil you've done, you're going to be destroyed. It's going to come soon. Period. End of prophecy. But he lines up these taunts, these barbs that stick. that rattle the beehive. He's doing it, expressing something. You see, God's taunts aren't put out there to rile somebody up unnecessarily. This isn't a prize fight. God's not petty like that. What this is reflecting is that God is actually deeply opposed to Assyria and what they stand for. His words are laced with arsenic because, precisely because, God is so resolved in his opposition to Assyria. There's a lot of different views of God out there. We think of God different ways. This offers a corrective to one of those ways we view him. As kind of the big grandfather in the sky. Who's full of love and care. Which God is certainly those things. But like the grandfather just kind of. It's optimistic. Everything's good. I love all things. I love everybody. And while Bobby's going around bopping people on the head and stealing toys and making everybody cry, oh, Bobby couldn't do anything wrong. He's such a good little boy. That view of God is not the view of God presented in the scriptures and particularly here in Nahum. God 
deeply loves his people. And he is full of mercy and compassion. But he is equally opposed to evil. And when he looks at, at the evil and the brokenness and the oppression in this world, and particularly in the extremes as embodied in the Assyrian Empire, God, in his core, is against it. Every fiber of who our God is, is opposed to that kind of cruel inhumanity, that oppression, that injustice, that evil, that Assyria embodies. God's not just chirping to get somebody riled. God is expressing how deeply resolved he is to be against this kind of behavior. And that's why verse 19 ends with explaining precisely why God is coming against Assyria. Why they have a wound that cannot be cured. A deep cause of hurt. It is because, as it says, for upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. In our passage, we saw how they treated Thebes, didn't we? When I think of how they treated the infants and the children. It, it almost makes you sick. It's so disgusting. How could somebody do that? But as we've been learning, it's just one example of how the Assyrians behaved. Through our series in Jonah and Nahum, we've heard anecdote after anecdote of the kind of cruelty kind of blatant disregard for human life that the Assyrians embodied. Unceasing evil that has come upon every single nation, every single city, indeed every single individual that they have encountered. It's not arbitrary here. God's not just saying, uh, it's time for the Syrians to fall. Okay, you're going down. Every political regime has its day in the sun and yours is over. No. God is expressing an aspect of his character that this kind of unceasing evil will not be tolerated by him. He is against it to his very core. And that is why he says these things. You remember the first rule of trash talk? Don't dish it out if you can't back it up. I want you to consider for a moment the absurdity of this book of the Bible. It's written 
before Nineveh falls, when Assyria is still the dominant empire. And you have this no-name prophet. No one's ever heard of Nahum. You can't find, you read all of history, you can't find anything about Nahum except for what's right here in this book. Who's part of this puny little civilization, Israel. And here he is, speaking thusly about a regime that is known for their cruelty, take no prisoners approach. I guess they did take prisoners, but you know what I mean. Is the guy stupid? Taking him on this way? But what if, what if God is speaking through Nahum? What if God really is that much more powerful than the most powerful regime on the earth. And I think most of us in this room go, oh yeah, he is more powerful. We already know that. Don't, don't bother us with these what ifs. We get it. God's more powerful. Do we really believe that though? Do I really believe that? I mean, I believe it in my theology. But do I believe it here in my heart? It's the question I've been asking myself. It's the question I want to ask you. Here's a good way to ask. Ask yourself. Examine your heart. Here's a good way for me to examine my heart. When we encounter evil in this world and go through evil things, how do we respond? So maybe we, we look at something, the trajectory of government or the trajectory of society, and we feel like it's going in an evil direction, a, a bad direction, and evil is winning. Do we fixate on that? Do we fixate on the obstacles in front of us and start to despair? Or do we look with hope and keep our eyes fixed on God, trusting Him, continuing to walk as a steady outpost of God's kingdom here, even in a world that seems like evil's winning. Or maybe it's just like, you know, the outer tentacles of evil, right? There's evil at its core, like Assyria, but there's products of living in an evil world. The Bible says that disease and sickness and death are products of living in a fallen world. And so we encounter these kind of outer reaches, these symptomatic aspects of evil when we get a certain diagnosis, when we're dealing with a certain infirmity. How do we respond? When a loved one who is dear to us dies, perhaps unexpectedly.
those kind of things, yeah, they'll grip us. Yeah, they hold our heart at a certain level. I'm not trying to say, you know, we should be machines and just pretend like those things. God, God even grieves and weeps over death and sickness. So I'm not, don't hear me the wrong way on this. But at the same time, where is our gaze fixed? Is it on a God who is actually bigger than the evil in this world and more powerful? And therefore, are, you, are we able to walk through this situation that even as we grieve, even as we're heavy-hearted because of what's going on and frustrated, we are full of hope. Or maybe some e something evil has been done to us. I could go on, example after example, but think of how you are encountering evil in your life and think of how are you responding to it. How am I responding to the evil that I face in my life? If I'm responding to it by, by fixating on the obstacles, by becoming consumed with bitterness or despair or frustration, then maybe I don't really believe that God is more powerful than the Assyrian Empire and therefore more powerful than whatever force of evil is in my life. Think about Joseph. Here's a man whose own brothers kidnapped him and sold him into slavery in a foreign land. Our low can't get much lower than that. The young man, here he is, and what does he do? He continues to fix his eyes on God and walk with a certain humility but a certain confidence that comes from knowing God is in control even in this situation. And even in that situation, he sees God at work as he rises to become the leader in Potiphar's household. Then again, falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, something he didn't do, he's thrown into the Egyptian dungeon. And there he does a special favor to two different uh, servants of the king who are in prison there, one of whom promises that when he gets to, or one of whom gets back to Pharaoh and has promised, I'm going to tell you about this guy Joseph. He doesn't tell him about Joseph. Two years pass as Joseph lies in prison. Think of all that could have happened in his heart towards God, towards his fellow man. All the bitterness that could have stored up there like a cesspool. All the pity party and the wallowing in my sick circumstance that could have suffocated him. But when Pharaoh finally needs an interpreter for a dream, he calls Joseph before him. You have to understand, Pharaoh thought of himself as the God, the most powerful God in the land. And he says to Joseph, I hear you can interpret dreams. You know what Joseph says? God can interpret dreams. 
that's a gutsy move right there. You finally get out of prison. You finally have your chance. And you're about to tell him, no, no, no. Somebody who's more powerful than you can interpret dreams. It's not the first thing you say if you're studying public relations. But do you see, there was a confidence that Joseph had. That my God that I serve is more powerful than Pharaoh, is more powerful than my circumstances, is more powerful than my brothers. I walk with a certain confidence through that. Because his view of God was right. And it shaped how he walked. I think of, uh, I played football in high school. And I think of my freshman year. And uh, I had gotten my, my game jersey. And on Fridays, Friday was football day. On Fridays, the football team wore their game jersey. And I remember putting that jersey on. And then you walk into school and all the other football players, football's a big deal in the state, so all the other football players are wearing, you got the marching band marching through the hallway because it's game day, the drum line's playing their kit. And you walk, I mean, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't a great superstar or anything, but I just walked like I was two inches taller, you know? It just, cha it changed the way I walked because it was just a common mindset. When we have a right view of God, when we really believe that he is more powerful than the most powerful empire of this earth and the most evil empire of this earth, it changes the way we walk. In one sense, we walk with a certain humility. It's not, I don't, it's not about me anymore. I don't need to fixate on myself. I'm not the one who has to get myself out of the situation. It's not incumbent upon me to solve all this situation or to fix it all. So there's a humility. God, you're in control. I'm going to walk dependent on you. But there's a certain broadness to the gate that it brings too. Because I'm a servant of the king who wins in the end. Who is bigger than all of this. And so I can walk with a certain confidence. A humble confidence. Through whatever evils I'm facing. What if God really is more powerful? What if he can back up what he's dishing out? Well, those of you who've been with us know it was less than 50 years, not less than 70 years, less than 50 years later that Nineveh fell, exactly as God had described it would. But more so, we, on this side of the cross, can look back 2,000 years to when God became a man, and as we'll celebrate in a week, actually conquered death. Only one person in the history of the world has died and come back to life never to die again. We're not talking about, you know, 
die and near-death experience or even be in the grave, actually be dead and come back to life, but then die a few years later. Jesus conquered death. A lot of other religions can stand out there and tell you, look, our God is stronger than the other gods. Our God is stronger than the greatest empire. Just like I'm telling you. What makes Christianity distinct and different is that there's a historical reality that proves God's strength. And if he's strong over death, he's strong over all evil. If he can conquer death, he's more powerful than anything. Now, that's why, that's why Easter is so important. You know, Paul will say, if Jesus isn't really risen from the dead, if it's just kind of a nice idea that makes us all feel good, but it's just kind of a spiritual reality, not a physical bodily resurrection, we're to be pitied. We're fools. Our whole hope based on the fact that he did, in fact, rise, as was witnessed by so many, has changed the lives of so many immediately after it happened. I'm not going to go into a long defense of the resurrection, but just to say, God is more powerful. And the cross and the resurrection prove that more than anything else. As we've been preaching through Jonah and Nahum, our our question has been, how do we stand in the face of evil? And what we've been learning from Nahum is that we cannot let evil steal our hope because God will ultimately triumph over evil. We're about to sing a song about how God is stronger than even his enemies. And he is the Lord of all. And I'd encourage you as you sing it to really ask yourself, do I believe what I am singing? And if I believe it, how does it affect how I walk? How does it affect my gait when I'm walking through evil times? when I'm encountering evil. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We're so grateful for the cross whereby we who have evil in our own hearts can be forgiven and be counted as citizens of the king who is all goodness and who is stronger than the forces of this world. And who will one day triumph. May we be a people who believe that. Not just in our theology. But in how we really live day to day. Through the worst of circumstances. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.